Okay, so what, first question, I'm going to look on the bottom. Okay, how do you forgive someone and let go of hatred or resentment or anger if they haven't asked for forgiveness or tried to fix anything or resolve the issues at hand? Let's assume talking it over with that person is not an option. I'm just reading these questions like I always do directly, like word for word what you send me. Um, and obviously I don't know uh, who wrote the question, but the, which is part of the beauty of it. But um, you know, I'm I'm just reading it word for word. So the the what? Yeah, I'm recording. Yeah, the question is forgiveness when a person hasn't asked for forgiveness or tried to fix the problem or resolve the issue. So, um, and you can't talk it over with the person. So yeah, I mean that kind of preempts the uh, the ideal solution because ideal solution would be to resolve the problem by talking to the by addressing the person. Really, the the there is a mitzvah that says. It says in the Torah, Don't hate your brother, meaning your fellow Jew. Don't hate them in your heart. Uh, you should, um, you should uh, rebuke your, friend, your, your brother, your fellow. Um, that, uh, which means to say that in, if you have a problem with somebody, instead of holding it inside and harboring resentment against the person, you should address it with them. That's, that's the reason why the Pasuk says, the, the Torah says explicitly, you know, don't hate the person, correct them, rebuke them, you know, address the problem and, and uh, attempt to uh, attempt to somehow come to a to a resolution rather than keeping the emotion inside. So that's the ideal, obviously, that the Torah is talking about. But what happens in a situation where a person and, and generally we're not expected to forgive someone who is unrepentant of bad things that they've done or who refuses to address the problem or who re- refuses to correct it. We're only commanded and expected to forgive a person who is who recognizes. In other words, if a person recognizes that they've done wrong and they make amends or they try to make amends and they ask for forgiveness and they take the right steps and we are recalcitrant and we refuse to grant them forgiveness. So then we become the sinner instead of them because we are obligated to grant forgiveness if the person has taken every reasonable step to try to earn the forgiveness. On the other hand, on the other hand, the halacha the Rambam brings in the Mishneh Torah when he talks about forgiveness. He says if the person is an extremely uh, difficult individual or the person is not all there, you know, either mentally, emotionally or whatever, isn't really capable of uh, resolving, you know, of, of addressing the issue and is, or isn't really able to, uh, you, you don't really have the ability for whatever reason to communicate with that person and to express your concerns or your hurt, um, then if you forgive them out of the goodness of your heart, the Rambam says that's a wonderful thing to do. In other words, if you let go of the resentment that you have against the person, technically speaking, you have to think of it like this, that the way that the Torah views um, forgiveness is in a way transactional, meaning the person harmed you and therefore they owe you an apology, like we even say in English. They owe you some uh, some. Uh, kind of a uh, compensation for the harm that they've caused. And that could mean financially, if they've caused you financial harm uh, or, or physical harm. And that could mean emotionally that they restore your dignity and respect by asking for your forgiveness, which is really what asking for forgiveness essentially is. When somebody does something to you and harms you, um, there is the physical pain, there is maybe the emotional pain, there could be financial loss, but there is... Uh, there is a loss of dignity, really, that's involved when a person mistreats you. 
that they haven't given you the proper respect is what the forgiveness is about. If they, even if they corrected everything that they did wrong, there's still an obligation that they have that they owe you uh, an apology. And it, it, I think that English actually captures it pretty well. It's, a, it's an obligation that the person owes you a recognition that they did you wrong. And that's how they um, are giving you back the respect that you were robbed of in the process of being mistreated. Um, when you suffered mistreatment at their hands, you lost a certain level of respect and they're restoring it to you. Now, in a situation where a person is willing to give that up, it's called mechila, a person forgives. So they're allowed to do that. Now, if they're going to be genuine and actually release the person from any obligation towards them and say, listen, it's a small thing, it's an insignificant thing, I'm not going to focus on it, I'm not going to allow it to, uh, to, 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 to uh, affect my emotions or my behavior, um, and they're genuine about that, so then they can release the person from any obligation and forgive them with no strings attached, and it's no problem. That shows a greatness of the individual that they don't care about the offense that uh, was caused to them. But for most people, that's not true. And what happens is that they internalize the resentment and the anger, and it comes out in other cases and other situations, uh, you know, either consciously or, or not, uh, their upsetness at the person who hurt them. But if an individual really can see beyond that, like for instance, it says in the Torah about Moshe Rabbeinu, it says that uh, Miriam and Aaron were talking about Moshe behind his back. Right and it's and and Hashem rebukes Moshe, rebukes Aaron and Miriam for questioning Moshe and for speaking about it, but it actually says there Vaish Moshe Anav Meod that Moshe Rabbeinu was extremely humble, uh, more than anybody else on earth. Meaning to say he never would have complained about them talking badly about him. He wouldn't have cared. It wasn't something that would have registered uh, for him at all emotionally, and he wouldn't have had any reaction to it. Um, the only reason why Hashem intervened to correct Aaron and Miriam was because they had an in, incorrect understanding of the, uh, of the level of prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu, but not because Moshe Rabbeinu was personally offended. He wasn't personally offended. And the Rambam says it, uh, in a similar vein, in, in, in the same general area of the Mishneh Torah, the Hilchot Teot, when he talks about character, he says that, in, that the same thing about jealousy or about, uh, re- about revenge, taking revenge on people, bearing grudges against people. He says, in the eyes of a wise person, all of these things that people hold grudges about and all these things that people take revenge for are insignificant in the big picture of what's truly important. And therefore, a person who has their mind on what's truly important isn't going to let these things get to them. But that has to be genuine. So if a person can genuinely let a person off the hook for an offense that they've caused because it's impossible to resolve the situation, then they have, then that is healthier for them to let it go. Now, if they're defaulting on their responsibility to help the person who was the offender learn something and improve, so that's also not right. I mean, if they have the ability to address the issue and to correct that other person might be actually helping them to improve, then they should help them to improve. But if that's not a possibility, then letting it go is obviously taking what we call taking the high road. It shows that they are uh, able to transcend those uh, petty emotions and and uh, and let things go and not focus on their own personal offense. That's a very high level, and I think that's uh, that's to be praised if someone can do that. But only if it's genuine. If it's not genuine, then it just becomes that you're just denying how you really feel. You're not genuinely forgiving the other person, you're just allowing the situation to continue. And in that case, you have to find a way to try to resolve it. But in a, uh, but if you're genuinely allowed to, le- you know, willing to let it go, then let it go, for sure.
Okay. I have a question for Q&A. It's about women covering their hair when making a bracha. Is there any source to this or is it just an opportunity to bring modesty into a woman's life? Like when a woman is about to dip in the mikveh and no men around, obviously, is there any significance to covering her hair for the bachav tevila? So look, there's really, that's, a, that's probably the easiest question that's ever been asked in the Q&A. So I'm glad that they throw, threw me a, a, a softball for one of the uh, questions. There is no such obligation to, for a woman to cover her head when saying brachot. Um, there is a, uh, some say, like Ravadi Yosef, encouraged women to wear some kind of a head covering when praying because he thought that was a sign of respect for, for the prayer to have a head covering when, when um, engaged in tefillah. But there is no obligation to cover one's hair when saying a bracha. There, is, um, there are some women who, if there are other uh, you know, men in the family who are saying brachot around, might cover, the, cover up so that they will feel that they are you know, not uh, it, it being indecent in front of the, you know, someone else saying a bracha. But there's no such rule that a woman needs to cover her hair during saying brachot at any time. There's that, so that's an easy question. If a person wants to have extra modesty, they're welcome to in, introduce extra modesty into their life at any, you know, in any way. But uh, that's extra. In the mikveh, in the mikveh, when we want to dip, say the bracha, they give us a song. No, do they? Okay. It's not, a, it's not a requirement. It's definitely not a requirement. In fact, not to be, um, not to take this up to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, a PG-13 level, but... The, the fact is that a woman is allowed to say brachot with very minimal uh, dress. The, uh, the, the, in fact, the, um, the, the Mishnah even says a woman technically could say brachot without any clothes if she's, if she's sit, sit da- sitting down so that n- nothing is exposed of her private uh, parts, then she is fine to uh, say brachot practically, uh, practically without any covering at all. So definitely without hair covering. Um, so whatever is, um, and that's, that's in the Mishnah, I didn't make that up. I w- I'm just using that as an example to say that clearly, at least according to the Halakha, there wasn't, there, as long as a person's uh, genital area is covered, they're allowed to say brachot. That doesn't mean that they can pray in that state. For example, a person in their underwear is allowed to say brachot. They're not allowed to pray unless they're dressed appropriately the way that they would go out. They should at least be dressed into a level that they would go out if they're going to pray. But if they're saying brachot, um, as long as their private parts are not exposed, they're allowed to say brachot, and that applies to men and women equally. What about Shema? Shema is actually, um, it depends. If the person's saying Shema as they are, uh, as they are uh, part of Arvit or Shacharit, where they're saying prayer, they're saying a whole tefillah, so then they have to be dressed for tefillah. But if the person's just saying Shema before bed, they could be in their pajamas, or they could be, you know, as long as they're not literally indecent in the sense that, you know, their private parts are, are covered, then they're okay to say the Shema also. There's no requirement of being especially dressed. The, the, to the point that, you know, the Talmud even talks about a man who's sleeping. And in, in those days, men and women, adults and children, everyone, they didn't really sleep with clothes in the olden days. They didn't have pajamas. So they would mostly just go under a blanket and sleep without any clothes when they were sleeping at night. And that's a known thing. That's why in the morning we have a bacha when we get dressed, Malbish Arumim, in Shacharit, we say one of the Berchot Shachar, Blessed are you Hashem, Malbish Arumim, who clothes those who are naked. Because actually in the nighttime, they were usually not dressed, and they would get up in the morning and put clothes on, 
um, as they were getting out of bed. So uh, the, the, the Gemara talks about in the Mishnah, the Gemara talk about, we're, talk, we're going back 2,000 years ago, uh, that if a person is in bed and they're next to their spouse and they need to say the Shema, they can just wrap the blanket to separate between their body and their spouse's body without anything else on their body and stick their head out of the blanket so that they are considered covered relative to where their head is, you know, and then they could say the, they could say the Shema. So it's, uh, it's a very minimal requirement for coverage for Brachot and for Shema. They really for Tfilah, for Amidah, is where you have a requirement that a person needs to be dressed to the level that they would be dressed in front of an important person, um, you know, or a business, let's say, business situation uh, in, uh, for tefillah, I would say is a good, is a good uh, rule of thumb, how you would go in a business situation. So that's why, like, for instance, if, we, if you live in a society like ours where you wouldn't really go barefoot to work, but in some cultures, being barefoot is considered normal, even in public places. So if you're in a situation where being barefoot is normal, even in public places and in official capacities, so then you could be barefoot. But if you're in a situation where uh, being barefoot wouldn't be accepted, so then you have to wear shoes or slippers or something like that. Okay, we have another one. What's the deal with... I can only see the beginning. I've got to open the chat box. Okay. What's the deal with women learning Gemara? Is it an issue? Why or why not? Okay, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good controversial question, Semi. So the... Um, so, is it an issue? Uh, well, it's an issue for some rabbis. Um, it's uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a debated issue uh, among the uh, among different scholars. I think that the 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 crux of the issue, the question is, the what the what the Gemara says or what the what the Mishnah says, is is it speaks about a man teaching his daughter Torah. And it says that a man shouldn't teach his daughter Torah because he's going to teach her foolishness. But it doesn't actually say it's prohibited for them. To, it never, never says anything about it being prohibited to learn. Um, and, the, and the proof, there's, there's ample proof that it was never considered prohibited to learn for women, uh, for women to learn Torah. Because first of all, Dvorah herself, Dvorah the prophetess, obviously knew everything there was to know at her time, including all the written Torah and all the oral Torah because she was a prophetess and she was judging Israel, which means she was judging based on the halacha that was known and somebody must have taught her. So, uh, because there was no way to learn from books back then because you had to learn oral t- tradition from an oral transmission. So that means you had to have a teacher. So obviously somebody educated her and she was a, uh, you know, she was the leader, the spiritual leader of the people. So there's the proof that, and the evidence that obviously women could um, could learn and were not prohibited from learning. And there are many other examples of that. There's the example of, uh, uh, of uh, obviously, there's Buria in the Talmud, who was the wife of Rabbi Meir, who was extremely knowledgeable and uh, extremely knowledgeable in written and oral Torah. And it says she, she would learn thousands of halachot. She would go from rabbi to rabbi learning. Obviously, they didn't deny her the opportunity to learn. And there were tons of other examples of this throughout history of women who were accomplished in the area of Torah Shebaal Peh. Even the Ben Ishchai, very interesting, I, uh, the Ben Ishchai, who you would think would be exceptionally traditional on this, being an Iraqi rabbi from you know the uh, previous century, um, or I guess the end of the century, even before that now, um, but he was, uh, the, the Ben Ishchai even tells a story of a, uh, of a, uh, a, a girl who was listening to her father learn a day in, that, that basically her, uh, her father had a teacher for her. And at a certain point, you know, 
that she became so advanced that the teacher started teaching her more advanced topics and the, the father said, she doesn't need that, you know, whatever, let her, you know, she's done, wait till she gets married, she'll find a husband or whatever. And so he sent the tutor away. And so meanwhile, the girl's sitting in the room and the dad was learning with different students all the time and she was sitting inside the room and she ended up learning it better than, uh, better than any of the students just by listening all the time. And so there's an incident where it came out, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but it's actually a great story. But there's an incident where somebody came and made some mysterious comments and she understood what the guy was saying and her own father didn't understand what the guy was saying. I said, how did you know this? And she said, well, all these years I've been listening by the door and I learned everything that you know and everything that you taught, I learned it. And he said to her, uh, well, how come I didn't know then? If you, if you learned it from me, how come I didn't know? The, 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 and she said, well, because a person who's learning purely for its own sake, not recognize, nobody's watching them, nobody even knows that they're learning, that learning is of a higher quality than the learning of the person that people know about. So meaning, because she was secretly learning all along, she, uh, she, she knew it even better than the teacher. And, uh, and so that's another example. And, then you, and, and he quotes that story approvingly uh, to illustrate the idea of learning in a modest uh, way, not modest meaning physically modest, meaning modest not looking for attention. It leads to a greater understanding, greater knowledge than, uh, than learning, uh, it, making a spectacle out of learning. And he, he doesn't criticize the woman for having learned uh, everything that she learned. In fact, it seems to impl- implicitly criticize the father for stopping her from advancing her learning further and she ended up outsmarting him anyway. And then there's other examples of that. There's, uh, there's a very famous... Who was that? Huh? Who was that? That's an anonymous person. I don't know the name of that person. That Ben Ishchai brings the story. I saw the story in a commentary. I saw the story brought... Um, I'll say, tell you where I first saw it. I don't remember if I looked it up in the original source or not. I can't remember now. But I, I definitely saw it for the first time in Rav Ovadi Yosef has a commentary on Pirkei Avot called uh, Anaf Etzavot. And in that commentary, he actually quotes the, the story right out of the Ben Ishchai. So, uh, so uh, he also didn't say anything negative about the story. He didn't say, well, you know, how does that make sense that she was allowed to know that and she didn't consider it a prohibition to know that. And then there's even another example of it where there, there was a very famous um, Baghdadi um, uh, Rosh Yeshiva who, uh, who passed away and he lived in the times of the Rambam actually and he gave over the um, he gave over the, uh, the, the title of Rosh Yeshiva to, uh, to his daughter because he didn't have any sons I, I, I assume and so therefore his daughter uh, took over the yeshiva, and I think that they say she would teach uh, behind a uh, behind a curtain, uh, so that the people wouldn't see her or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so that so that they would uh, so you know so that it wouldn't be a uh, wouldn't be immodest. But technically, um, you know, technically a woman took over the yeshiva. That he was during the times of the Rambam, and uh, trying to remember, I think his name was. Uh, Right, there was hit, there was there was that rabbi, and then there was another rabbi. Um, there was uh, what's his name? Um, uh, I think. All oh, right, the last name is Barzani, right? Asu, I think I'm looking it up here. I think her name was Asnat Barzani. Yeah. So she 
was during the 16th century and was also somebody who was considered to be an outstanding scholar and a little bit later than uh, Shmuel ben Ali. But uh, there were many such women in history that, and interestingly, these are all Svaradim actually, but uh, Shmuel ben Ali's daughter and also uh, Asnat Barzani from... What? Yeah, I think she was actually Kurdish, but yeah. So it does sound, it doesn't sound, it does sound, it could be. But uh, the point being that there was a, uh, there was a, the, the idea was that not that women are prohibited from having any knowledge, because it's impossible to say that a human being is prohibited from having knowledge, and knowledge of Torah has to be something that's accessible to everyone. But the idea of how the educational system should work and what the Chachamim were saying was that it's preferable. They were giving advice. They said a, a person should not teach his daughter this material because it will just mess up her head. Because they didn't think that girls had the facility to be able to receive such a rigorous education. It's, more, it's similar to, if you want to look for an analogy to this in modern day education, it would be the attitude in science and math uh, fields to women's education, that for many, many years, until recently, really, um, women were not really encouraged to pursue science and math because it was assumed that they wouldn't really be cut out for that or they wouldn't be interested in that or they wouldn't be able to excel in that and therefore um, it wasn't really a field that was friendly to women. And so, <clears throat> and so that was the, it wasn't that they would forbid a woman from uh, entering into the program. It was just that they didn't really seek women as uh, candidates for those programs because they didn't think that they would be, um, that, that they would be uh, very successful. And so the way the rabbis said it was they thought that it would teach, they would, it, would, it would confuse them, it would overwhelm them, it would, it would, uh, uh, it would m- give them a lot of wrong ideas because they wouldn't have the discipline to really be able to stick with the program, whatever they thought. And of course, you know, sociologically and historically, we can put that in context uh, that uh, there were certain assumptions about women's cognitive ability really that per- persisted even into this, the modern day. It's not like they, uh, not like they went away, but they, they persisted even till relatively recently, um, about women's cognitive ability being different than men's, and therefore, um, and and I think I mentioned it in the last discussion that rather than recognizing that what they were seeing was the product of people's assumptions about women, they thought it was they thought that they were observing a cause. So they they believed that women were uh, had a different mind, a, a inferior mind to, to men, and therefore we should teach them differently. Instead of realizing that the assumption that we should teach girls differently was exactly what led to them having less of an aptitude because they didn't have, they weren't given the same academic opportunities and educational opportunities as men. So of course, um, the, uh, so of course they were going to turn out seeming less academically and intellectually inclined because they weren't given the same opportunities from the youngest age. They were just assumed that they would be mothers and be homemakers and wouldn't really have any, uh, any intellectual aspirations. So that's why you end up having to, having to, uh, uh, create, Horrible movies like Yentl, where uh, Barbara Streisand, you know, becomes. Remember that? Horrible. What? Oh, such a bad movie. Well, I mean, in my opinion, any movie with Barbara Streisand can't be that good. But I'm biased. Um, I'm biased. But uh, but anyway, 
the the, uh, the concept being that um, the concept being that this this was a uh, it wasn't really a prohibition. I would say it was a uh, it was more a, um, a a pedagogical guideline that the rabbi said that they that they said don't impose upon like the way that we. We are obligated to impose upon the boys a regimen of learning. Don't impose it upon the girls because they won't take well to it. But nowadays in a society where women are lawyers and doctors and at the, high, at the cutting edge of every academic field, just like men, uh, there's really no... Uh, I don't think if the rabbis saw that today, they would have the same advice for us that they did then. And clearly there was no prohibition on the learning of it. It was a prohibition on imposing such a curriculum on girls because it was thought to be incompatible with their nature. Um, I, I, now I think we would have reason to see that differently. But, you know, because of tradition, many rabbis will still oppose the teaching of Torah Shabbat Pet to girls because, you know, it's, uh, technically on the books, that's what it says. But in, uh, you know, over the past century, it's progressively become a looser uh, a looser restriction as women have advanced in, in every other area of Torah. And it's, I mean, of every other area of knowledge. And it's kind of silly to say to a brain surgeon, a female brain surgeon, I'm sorry, you don't have the mental ability to learn, to, to learn Gemarats. Uh, that, you know, that they should, they should be able to have access to the highest levels of, and be exposed to the highest levels of intellectual uh, challenge in every area except their religion ends up giving them a very, Super, it actually has the opposite effect that the rabbis were trying to prevent because they thought if they tried to impose an intellectual uh, regimen on women, it would cause them to get the wrong impression and have a misunderstanding of Judaism. It would be exactly the opposite nowadays if we don't do that because basically they'll come out thinking that every other su- subject is so deep and challenging and Judaism is just a bunch of stories and inspirational quotes, but it doesn't have any depth. And that would lead to the exact opposite of what the intention was of the rabbis who made those guidelines. So with all due respect to the rabbis that still try to prevent women from, from learning uh, Torah Shabbat Peh, I think that nowadays the general direction has been uh, towards opening those doors to them for at least the past, you know, mo- better part of the past century. And including, you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was uh, in favor of it. And, you know, Rabbi Soloveitchik was in favor of it. How many things do you find, how many areas do you find that the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rabbi Soloveitchik of Yeshiva University are on the same page? You know, that's impressive. I don't see a difference. I mean, the, the, all the Gemara is is explaining the Mishnah. Listen, a person that a person can make an argument that kids shouldn't learn Gemara at all, and I I would be sympathetic to that. I'm not a big fan of teaching young kids Gemara at all because I think it's very difficult for them, and it's for most kids it's uh, overwhelming. And the Mishnah says the Mishnah Pirkei Avot says Ben Chamesh Lemikra, a person when they're five years old, a child five years old learns Torah Shebichtav, and when they become ten. They learn the Mishnah. When they become fifteen, they learn the Gemara. But you know the the presupposition of all of this is that they uh, is that they have already mastered the previous disciplines. And most of the kids are being bombarded with random snippets of Chumash, and then random snippets of Navi, and then random snippets of Mishnah. And then they're learning Gemara, very advanced uh, reasoning of Gemara when they're ten years old, which is already according to the Gemara five years too young 
Uh, cognitively, the Gemara was actually really, the Mishnah was actually very much on target in terms of the uh, understanding of the cognitive ability of children and that the child should be older before they're exposed to that kind of abstract reasoning. So what ends up happening is when you try to teach Gemara to these young kids, they can't follow the ideas or they get a very, um, they get a very uh, uh, unsatisfactory level of comprehension of what's really going on. And I remember hearing one great Rosh Hashiva said that, you know, the Gemarot that he learned as a little kid that he was taught in like fourth and fifth grade, he could never learn them properly as an adult because the, his way of approaching them was like scarred from being exposed to them too early. So I'm not a believer in teaching Gemarot to young kids to begin with. Um, and I think a person should get into that learning if they have an aptitude for it and interest in it. And that even the Gemara itself says that uh, out of, uh, you know, out of thousands of students, only a fraction of them, only a half of a percent, uh, or, uh, or, or not a half a percent, maybe a, I think it was a, 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 you know, 0.1%, uh, a tenth of a percent would, would graduate to Gemara from all the people who went to learn. Because the... Uh, because it was very advanced, and that was it was uh, it was advanced learning. So not everybody has to be exposed to that when they're ready. It's uh, it's accessible to a person who has the interest and who wants to deepen their their understanding. But it shouldn't be denied to anybody. Uh, but it shouldn't be forced on anybody either. It has to organically grow out of their. It's like should we teach calculus? Uh, yeah, to the person who understands calculus and uh, is ready for that and has an interest in it or. Uh, an inclination or ability to learn it, yeah, they, if they're, they're learning math, they should learn it. But should I teach calculus to somebody in fifth grade? No, definitely not. So unless they're one of those geniuses who end up, you know, finishing college when they're 10 years old. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, no. So <coughs> it depends more on the, 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 the person and their level uh, than it depends on uh, their gender. Uh, the... Uh, how, okay, next question. How do we remain trusting in Hashem while still putting our own efforts in life? I like this kind of question. This comes up every once in a while. It's a good question. I feel like the line is so blurry between using our ability to do things to try and control the outcomes in our lives and doing things to put in the effort while still somehow trusting that it's in Hashem's hands. I'm not sure what being in Hashem's hands means. Just a term I'm using that I've heard. If you can give some clarity on what that would mean, I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, I, I think this question is very fundamental, actually. I'm glad somebody brought it up. Um, I think during the beginning of the pandemic, which, you know, it's coming up on uh, close to a year already, but it was probably, it was last year around Pesach time, we were learning Shara uh, Bitachon in Chovot HaLevavot. And um, it was, uh, and we, we actually touched upon this topic in a lot of detail. And, and I know that a bunch of people did follow that series and they, they, uh, they even, um, you know, they, they followed it closely. We were doing it every day, half an hour, and it was, it was really nice. And we did touch upon that topic a lot. So someone who's really interested in the issue of Bitachon, I would encourage them to go on the website, on, on my website, and, and uh, find those classes and, um, and, and uh, review them, because I think you'll find that, they're, uh, that they, they go into this topic in, uh, in a lot of detail. That was Shara Bitachon uh, of Chovot HaLevavot. But, um, but to give the direct answer to the question as asked, so the, the main thing of, uh, the main approach here is to realize that whatever's in your sphere of influence, you do. Because what Hashem, uh, because Hashem created the world and He created you in it, and part of what God's plan is and what God's 
uh, design is, is that you as an individual should use your abilities to their fullest extent in pursuing what you understand to be best. Now, you might sometimes be wrong, but determining what is best is also something that God put into your hands to do. That's called exercising your free choice. So therefore, you have to make your best effort to determine what is good and to determine the means to achieve and the, you know, the, 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 uh, the steps along the way to achieving that good. And you need to exercise every influence and every, uh, every power at your disposal and every resource at your disposal to achieve it because that is God's plan. God created a framework in which you, by utilizing the tools that were given to you, um, are able to uh, extract his blessing from the world. And to the extent that you have ability and you don't use it, you're actually, um, you're, you can't blame Hashem for that. That's, only, that's something that's the, the ball is in your court to make sure that you uh, go to the fullest extent in your, uh, in your, your what they call hishtadlut, your own in, investing of time and effort in the pursuit of your objectives in life. What does it mean for it to be in Hashem's hands? Well, there are factors that are beyond our control. And there are uh, and there are considerations that uh, we we don't, we are not able to see. And sometimes, what we think is good and what we think the outcome that would be best is, we might be wrong about that, and we might be thwarted in our attempts to achieve that goal because there's a greater plan at work that you know didn't think didn't agree with us uh, about what we thought would be the best outcome. And uh, and that that aspect of the grand plan is beyond our control, just as certain aspects of, the, uh, of, of our own lives are out of our control. For instance, uh, our bodies are not fully in our control, obviously. They're somewhat subject to, uh, uh, to uh, forces that we cannot master, our health, um, our, natural, uh, uh, our natural abilities that we, are, that we were born with, um, the resources that are available to us, our environment. There are a lot of factors that are not in our control. And in that sense, those are in God's control. So there is a grand plan. There's a grand design. But you are a part of that plan and that design. And your intelligence is a part of that design. And your actions are a part of that design too. God is counting on you, so to speak, to achieve the purpose that he set out to be accomplished in the world. He's counting on you to discover what that purpose is by searching it out to the best of your ability and then using every resource at your disposal to pursue it. And if you fall short in that, so then um, you're, you, it's, it's, uh, that is something that's fully up to you to do. Um, and God has designed the world in such a way that... Uh, that that's what he expects from us. And I always use as the, uh, as maybe it's a, an example I've used too many times before. So everyone may have heard this already who's listening to this, uh, but I will share it again because I think it's the best, simplest example that Abraham Avinu, when he comes to the land of Canaan, the first thing that happens is a famine. And uh, Abraham Avinu has to shift gears and go to Egypt, even though he just slept all the way from Ur Kasdim or Haran all the way to Canaan to settle there, uh, fulfilling the, the mitzvah of Hashem, but he gets to Canaan and there's a famine and so he has to leave and he goes to Egypt. Now, if you're a person who, um, who just was told by God to, you're going to be rich and famous and successful and I want you to go to Canaan and you show up there and it becomes a famine, you'd probably be pretty disillusioned by that 
and you'd be pretty angry. And you might say, well, maybe I'm just going to sit right here until God makes me rich and famous like he promised, and I'm not moving from here because he told me to come here. But Avram doesn't do that. He says, you know what? I'm going to use my intelligence. I'm going to use my understanding. I'm going to go to Egypt because Hashem doesn't expect me to die here, obviously. He told me to come here, but he didn't say not to use my intelligence when I have no food. So I'm going to go to Egypt. And not only that, I'm also going to realize that there's a possible danger in going there. So I'm going to say that my wife is my sister. And all of that. So every step that Abraham takes is a using of his intelligence and his practical sense of what's right and wrong and, you know, and what is wise or unwise in conducting his life. And what ends up happening to Abraham Avinu in that situation, if you really look at it, what ends up happening is he becomes rich and famous from going to Egypt because the Pharaoh takes his wife and then there's a miraculous intervention which brings to light the specialness of Avraham. Meanwhile, the Paro has rewarded him amply with all kinds of material gifts. He leaves Egypt rich and famous. Now, who would have thought that he would come out of that rich and famous? What led to him discovering that or, or being granted that, that those riches and that fame? It was the fact that he followed his intelligence. In other words, God had already planted for the blessing for him in Egypt. He didn't tell him that was where it was, but he shows us that by following our intelligence, that's how we end up coming across the blessing that Hashem put there for us. It's almost like a scavenger hunt where you, you know, where you have to follow the instructions. If you follow the instructions, you end up finding the treasure. The treasure is planted there. But the, the instruction is use your intelligence to the best of your ability. Use your understanding to the best of your ability. Mobilize all the resources at your disposal to the best of your ability. God has planted the blessing along the way that you're going to extract it. You're going to chance upon it um, if you follow the proper path. And that's what it means to trust God. To trust God is to realize that there's a plan that is greater than you. Both, there's a plan that is even greater than the plan of your life, obviously, that you're playing a role in a plan of humanity and of creation, that you're one piece of that. And there's a plan for how your life is supposed to fit into that grand plan. And all that we can do is the best to extend ourselves to the utmost in terms of understanding what our purpose is in life and doing everything within our sphere of influence to achieve it. And that's actually what it means to trust God because to trust God is to believe that he gave you all the tools and abilities and potential that you need to achieve your goal and that he, that he made the environment such that if you do that, you will achieve the goal. It's just that what you might think the goal is in the beginning might have to be revised a few times along the way, or you might have to shift gears in terms of, you know, the journey that you think that you're on might shift and, you know, might have a few detours along the way. But ultimately, um, the fact that you are acting to the fullest extent of what you're capable of is God's plan. It's not, there's a, there's a famous story that Rabbi Akiva one time was summoned by this Roman um, named Tornos Rufus, who said to him, I have a question for you. Uh, you know, why do you do a Brit Milan on the eighth day? And, uh, and you know, why, Hashem made a person with a foreskin. So why are, you, uh, why are you taking off the foreskin that God put on the, uh, on, on the male child? Why are you taking it off? You're saying that God is, is, that your actions are better than God's actions? God made the child with the foreskin. Why are you taking it off? And so, so, uh, uh, he, so he said, don't you believe that, uh, what do you believe is better, the actions of human beings or the actions of God? And Rabbi Akiva said, the actions of human beings are better. So Turnus Rufo said, what are you talking about? How could you say that? And Rabbi Akiva said, I'll show you. He went and got a raw piece of wheat and he got a piece of bread. He said, which one is better? Which one would you rather have? The piece of wheat, the raw wheat, or the loaf of bread? So obviously the loaf of bread. So, so you see that the actions of human beings are better. 
Meaning to say that God put tons of potential in the world, but at the end of the day, we are part of that plan. The use of our intelligence is part of that plan. And we, br- we cultivate nature and let's say a field that would produce a certain amount of yield in a year or trees that would produce a certain amount of yield, we can make it 10,000 times as much by using our intelligence to nurture those trees and to cultivate them or to nurture the soil, to nurture the crops, whatever it is, to cultivate that. God made uh, medicine and made the body able to produce antibodies and to function an immune system and all of that and he gave us intelligence to make it work even better. So we're able to discover ways to make the, uh, what, what was naturally there even better. That's why it says, Asher bara Elohim la'asot, that Hashem made the world. When we say on Shabbat, that, these, that, that uh, we say that Hashem created la'asot, to do. What does it mean, Asher bara Elohim la'asot? That God made it to do. Meaning the doing is not complete. That Hashem made the world la'asot, that we should continue to do. We should continue to act. We should continue to perfect it. We continue to bring out its potential. We continue to extract the blessing that God put there. That is actually a component of God's providence that he gave us the ability um, and the inclination and the desire to to do that. And that is how the world reaches its uh, full potential. It's through us. So don't think that in taking action, you are going against trust in God. It's the opposite. You're trusting in God that he actually gave you this path um, in using your intelligence to achieve his purpose. That's the greatness of God, that he's able to create a universe in which we have free choice, and yet we are partners in, um, in, in fulfilling his will and fulfilling, fulfilling the objective of, of the creation. That's what it means. Elohim la'asot. Okay. <clears throat> How do we discover our voice or opinions when so much of it is influenced by other people's ideas? How do we know if we're being genuine or just adopting the best argument we've heard so far rather than came up with ourselves? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose it is hard. I think every person uh, realistically realistically, every person is a product of many influences. And at different stages of our lives, we're also uh, subject to varying influences. So you might look back at certain periods of your life where you were under the influence of a certain way of thinking or certain teachers or certain relatives or friends or trends. And then later in your life, different ones. And then later, even different ones. So Throughout life, I think at any given period of our lives, we are the product of, uh, of many influences. And it's a unique person, um, a very rare person, individual, uh, who is able to completely rise above the, um, you know, the trends of thought of their age. And by age, I mean of their era that they live in and be able to be a truly independent thinker. That's a very, very rare occurrence. Um, And even those who achieve it to some extent rarely fully achieve it, meaning there are some people who can think outside the box independently to a certain extent or in certain areas, but still might be held back in other areas. Um, And so the question I would say is like, What's the problem? In other words, 
why do we, what's the problem with being influenced by other people's ideas, right? So the question presupposes that there's a problem, meaning that discovering our own voices or opinions when so much is influenced by other people's ideas is a problem. I mean, I think that's just human nature that we are, why when we look up at the sky, do we not see a fiery God rising up from, you know, rising up from its cave to, uh, uh, to shed light upon the world. Instead, we just see the sun as a fiery, you know, inanimate uh, star, you know, because we're conditioned to see it that way because then in our culture, we're taught from a young age that this is, you know, there's a scientific understanding of the world and we know that the sun is not a god. So that itself, that's also being influenced by the opinions of other people. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, they ha- that happens to be correct in that case instead of being wrong. So just because you're influenced by the opinions of other people doesn't always mean it's bad and you don't have to have your own independent ideas and opinions about every subject. In fact, one of the things that upsets me, in our, you know, whenever I see opinion columnists, it bothers me because they have to have a strong opinion about something every single day in order to keep their job. How can you have a strong opinion about something every single day? Isn't there any subject that you just don't have a strong opinion about or you haven't really thought it through yet? Do we really think that these people are able to form such staunch opinions about some subject that's on the, uh, you know, that's on the agenda every single day and that it's going to be of some value? I'm not necessarily sure. I think that we slowly evolve our own ideas in areas as we come to know them better and we develop an independent understanding. So in the beginning, we all stand on what they call the shoulders of giants, as, they, as Newton said, and, um, and we slowly develop our own ideas over the, pa- over the course of time as we become wiser in a subject, little by little. All of us growing up were influenced by a lot of things our parents told us, and we might have thought about things through the lens of our parents framed them for us. And then when we get older, in some areas we might still agree with the way that our parents thought about those things, and in some ways we might disagree. What changed, hopefully, isn't just that now we're listening to other authority figures and we're not thinking for ourselves. What changes? we have more knowledge, we have more experience of the world, we have more knowledge about the world, and we're able to form an opinion and an understanding that is organically built out of our experiences and our thought. But that's not going to happen overnight. Most of what we think and feel and is going to be mediated through the opinions and influence of other people until we've matured in our understanding little by little in, um, in, in those different areas of, of study. So, it, it, you know, if you think about it, Um, when you read a book and you're a little kid, the teacher explains it to you. And then when you read a book and you're a big kid, the teacher explains it. And then you go to college and the teacher explains it. And then what was the first, you know, at a certain point you read a book and you're able to have your own critical thought about the book that nobody else told you and nobody else conditioned you. And maybe other people didn't, didn't even agree with you. And so that shows you that you've, you've developed your own understanding and you're able to sit um, independently of anybody else's influence or opinion and, and, have, an, and have your own uh, idea. But I think that is something that is a gradual process. There's nothing wrong uh, with uh, learning from other people or being influenced from other people uh, as we grow. In fact, Avraham Avinu is a very interesting midrash that says about Avraham that every person who ever lived has an obligation of respecting their parents, except Avraham... Avinu was exempt from the mitzvah of kibud avvaim. That's why he was able to leave his parents' home even before his father died. It's a he left while his father was still alive. He abandoned his parents. Why was he able to do that? 
So the, the Midrash says he was the only person ever able to do that. It's a very interesting observation to make and very contrary to Jewish values. What's the idea? That Avram Avinu was the first person in history that really fully became independent of the thinking of the people before him. He was fully radical in his ideas, so much so that he thought complete, his, his whole, he was self-created in that sense. But he wasn't self-created until he was 75 years old. So what does that show you? That shows you that a person who is on the level of understanding and uh, fierce, uh, you know, uh, fierce dedication to the truth of Avraham Avinu after 75 years of searching might be able to achieve full independence in his thought and action from the people that came before him and from the culture in which he or she was raised. That's what, the, uh, that's what, it's, what it's telling you, which means that basically for most of us, that's never going to happen fully. Little by little, we might become independent in areas as we grow in our understanding. But uh, most areas, we're not going to have the, we're not going to necessarily achieve that, or at least not fully. And that's why even Yitzchak and Yaakov were not on the level of Avraham. They were influenced by him. Even Moshe Rabbeinu was only who he was because he inherited a legacy that went back to Avraham Avinu. So if you think about it that way, really he was the only fully independent person. To be a fully independent person is a rarity of rarities. And if you look at people who make great discoveries, uh, Einstein, Newton, whoever, I don't want to name all the names, many great thinkers who made radical discoveries in science doesn't necessarily mean that they were radically independent in every other area, even in every other area of science. But in certain areas, they were able to see things that nobody else was able to see and have really independent thoughts. So let yourself grow in your knowledge. Learn as much as you can about a subject that you are intrigued by, interested in. And when you become confident and you become fully versed in that subject, you will begin to organically form views and ideas in your mind that really are uh, synthesized, might still be synthesized from some of the influence of other people, but will really be yours. It'll be yours because they'll be after a lot of research and a lot of thought and a lot of your own independent um, uh, investigation. And that's why it says in the very first chapter of Tehillim, it says, uh, It talks about a person who doesn't get influenced by the wicked. I think we had a shiur on him. We talked about Tehillim, the very first one of the chapters of Tehillim. He doesn't walk with the wicked. He doesn't sit with them. He doesn't stand with them and so on. And then it says, That his desire is in the Torah of Hashem. And in his Torah, he contemplates or he talks day and night. So the rabbis say, why does it change from saying the person is involved in Torah Hashem and then says, his Torah. What, what happens is because when a person learns earnestly and deeply and continually meditates on the Torah, eventually it becomes their Torah. It becomes you, becomes internalized becomes your understanding. In the beginning, you're dependent on external authority, but eventually it becomes part of you and you begin to see it with your own eyes, just that you have new eyes. See, your, your, your perspective changes. And um, that's what the famous Bruce Lee said. Bruce Lee, the, the martial artist said, 
One of my rabbis used to quote this to us all the time when I was a young guy, uh, which was a very long time ago. But uh, back in those ancient times, when we would see a dinosaur pass by, no, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but it was, uh, but it was, uh, we would, we would, he would say, he would quote Bruce Lee and he would say, Bruce Lee said, when I first would fight on the street, a punch was just a punch. Then I learned from, a, I learned martial arts and a punch became this very technical performance that you had to do exactly a certain way, a certain form, a certain, said, but eventually a punch was just a punch again. Meaning you internalize the form, becomes you. So certain ideas, as you, they develop, they'll become your ideas as you think into them on your own. And that's a gradual process that every person has to go through. You're right, the questioner is correct, that most people don't really achieve that because most people just live their lives without much thinking. But since you're asking the question, I know that you're a person who's thinking and who wants to develop their own ideas and understanding of the world. And that means that if you continue working on that and continue to learn, you'll get there. In, but just don't expect to become a totally independent radical overnight. One step at a time, one issue at a time, you'll be able to develop your own understanding um, and see things through your own eyes. Last one. Are women allowed to say Kaddish? That one is um, a matter more of uh, custom than halakha. It doesn't say anywhere in halakha that women are not allowed to do that. Uh, certainly if they're in a minyan where other people are saying Kaddish and they want to recite Kaddish along with the men who are saying Kaddish, there's nothing against it. Now, I'm talking about in halakha. In a, in a particular community... There could be a custom that, you know, is, uh, uh, discourages that. Even there, nobody would say it's prohibited, but there might, it might be discouraged in some communities where it's not generally done and then it becomes uh, uh, something that is looked at negatively. But technically speaking, there's nothing wrong with saying Kaddish. It, uh, it's just a, uh, in some communities they have the custom not to, or they have the custom that only if a man is also saying Kaddish, uh, the woman could say it along with the, from the woman's section, together with someone who's saying Kaddish. The reason is, in order to, uh, you know, is out of modesty concerns. It's not really because of any, uh, a, any halachic concern, because Kaddish is just an idea that has to be said in the presence of a minyan. There's no, uh, it's not really leading the prayer. You're not really saying anything that you're fulfilling the obligation of anybody else. So she wouldn't have to be obligated in any uh, specific, um, you know, in, in any specific responsibility. Like, for instance, certain things women are, don't recite because they're not obligated on the same level as the men. So for them to say that particular bacha wouldn't be right for, because they, you have to be on the same level of obligation to fulfill somebody else's mitzvah. But in the case of Kaddish, you're not fulfilling anybody's mitzvah, so really it should be okay unless there's a communal custom that, you know, discourages it. In which case, you know, we have to respect community custom and it's important. Unity and peace and, and harmony is the most important thing. And to say Kaddish uh, in a situation that's going to cause disharmony would be obviously defeating the purpose of uh, doing, you know, doing an otherwise good action. I think... I have heard that the community's custom is not for women not to do it. I've definitely seen other communities where they've had different practices, though. Um, that's why I wouldn't make a blanket statement. I think from what I heard, I'm not 100% sure, but I think from what I heard that in our community, when women have asked, 
it's been recommended to them that a, that a man say it on their behalf. And again, that's not because there's anything really wrong with the woman saying it so much as, like, for instance, if they were in a community where they're visiting a community where women did say it, they wouldn't have to say, well, uh, because I'm a shaddy, I can't say it. Uh, it. It's not something like that. But when you're in a community that the practice is um, not to do it or to discourage it, so I guess we, you know, one should respect the, the, the custom of the community. And I think the community's custom is for them not to. All right, so Bezrat Hashem, we'll see what's going to happen for next week. I actually just 